0: to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and my guest today is a remarkable woman who describes herself as an Imago Day enthusiast, a sacred space maker, and a paradigm shifter with a passion for liberation. Reverend Aurelia Davila Pratt is the lead pastor of Peace of Christ Church and was named by Sojourners as one of the top 10 Christian women shaping the church in 2022. Her new book, A Brown Girl's Epiphany, Reclaim Your Intuition and Step Into Your Power, just released this week. So in this episode, we talk about all of this and more. As Aurelia shares her story of growing up in a brown body in mostly white spaces, and then her journey towards liberation. She reminds us we all have what we need to step into our own power and out of harmful belief systems. Listen in on our conversation. welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you. I've been following you for a while. It it feels really exciting to be on. And that's just such a weird thing to hear. I have been following you as well and learning so much from you. And I'm just one, glad that we're like connecting here
1: face-to-face online, but then that we're going to meet in person in just a few weeks. I know. I'm so excited. I'm so nervous. There's so many people. There's several who, people who I've connected with in a meaningful way online who right. I've never met. And I'm so nervous, but also excited.
0: <laughs> I'm the same way, like absolutely hundred percent the same way. Cause I can be I'm an anxious person and an introvert, and I can just be like, I'll just stay in the hotel room, really. Yeah. But I'm just, and for people that are listening in, we're talking about the Nevertheless She Preach conference. And this is Aurelia. And she is my guest today. And she has a new book called A Brown Girl's Epiphany. And we're gonna talk about that and her story. And like she mentioned, we have connected online and then. Thanks to you you've got me connected to lead a workshop at the Nevertheless She Preached and you're going to be a keynote speaker so lots of amazing things yeah. coming up with that. Before we before we dive into your book and your story and get too far ahead and talking about Nevertheless She Preached and all that can you just introduce yourself to my listeners not like a full bio, but just where you are in the world, who you live with, what you do day to, day to day, all of that stuff.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I like that way of framing the introduction. Very thoughtful. Well, my name's Aurelia. I live in central Texas, just north of Austin. I'm in a town called Cedar Park. It's not a town. It's a city. It's all big around here. Mm-hmm. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> I'm not from here. I'm from Louisiana. Originally, I moved to Texas in 2008 for seminary, and I also got a master of social social work while I did that in Waco. And now this many years later, I'm a pastor at a church called Peace of Christ Church, which I also founded 10 years ago with a group of people. And I have a a partner, a husband named Lyle. I have a daughter named Cosette. She's in first grade and I have a a dog named Sunday, but we call him Sunny. And you're an author. Your book comes out, released, I guess, officially. Your
0: launch date is September 13th, which is about... When this podcast will air. So congratulations on that new Thank phase you. of your resume.
1: Gosh. So exciting.
0: It's very but surreal. I'm I'm sure. It's probably like you've been birthing a baby and it's finally coming to the world. Yeah. So yeah. Still <laughs> trying to
1: wrap my brain around it.
0: And I want to preface, I know you said you were a pastor, and with my own stuff, sometimes I know other people listening can be like, oh gosh, she's a pastor, but Mm-hmm. No, we're we're not. Ha- I mean, Kendall, who was our last guest as a pastor. So this is a whole new era of pastors and women theologians. You absolutely fall into that. I was actually listening one, to one of your podcasts, the one on astrology, because I was oh, also with yeah. Sagittarius. And, okay, And for me, that's like, Oh, my whole life. Oh, astrology is bad. You don't even look at that. Don't. Yeah. And so it was like this is a whole new level of liberation and freedom in what it means to be a Christian and you being a pastor and leading and liberating people. So I'm just thrilled yeah. to have you here.
1: Yeah. I always say like, you know, I'm a heretic to so many people. And I said this on one of your posts recently, but I always say like, if I lived way back when I totally would have been burned at the stake, like called a witch, but I, yeah, I feel like leaning into that liberative version of the faith and that liberative paradigm of following the ways of Jesus is the the type of person I am, the type of community I'm trying to be a part of creating.
0: I can absolutely relate to that just with my own story in the last couple of years. Once we get into your little story a little bit, I'm so curious how you got there because you went to seminary in Texas and that just doesn't <laughs> totally align with me, but we'll wait for that part of your story. So we're going to start your origin story because I think that's so important in kind of defining where you are today, your purpose, what drives you. And one of the things you open your book with is that your grandma and the important role she played just in your life and your liberation, something she always said to you was remember where you came from, even as a child. So now you're thinking about that. So. So how would you answer that question now? Where did you come from? If your grandma was telling you like, remember where you came from, how, how would you voice that?
1: Yeah, I think I resonate a lot with, with that liminal space that so many, honestly, so many Latino women talk about, but basically that in-between space, that's where I feel like I come from because I, I was born and raised in rural North Louisiana and a town that was Predominantly white and black, there was really nobody else when I was little. And so I really felt that in between way in an outward physical way, but then also feeling like, you know, there was this part of me that had a heritage, had a culture, but I was disconnected to it being in rural North Louisiana, not around any communities like myself or like my ancestry or like how even my grandmother grew up in. And so she would always say, remember where you came from? And and that was a complicated phrase to get from her because it usually wasn't in a nice way. (laughs) It wasn't in an inspiring way. Mm -hmm. We can all agree in my family, but the truth remains there for me that it's, I don't know, it's just empowering to me to think about. It's empowering to think about the reclamation of where I came from and also the acceptance of the context that I grew up in and living in that liminal space of accepting both and how they've shaped me. I'm not sure any of that made sense.
0: (laughs) It absolutely made sense. And I mean, our stories are all are complicated and it's not just an easy simple answer, especially the layers with your grandmother. One of the things that I made note of you said, when I consider my grandmother's story, I begin to understand that's my story too. And she talked about, I guess, to you is I didn't cross the border, the border crossed me.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I'd love for you to dive into that a little bit because that that's your ancestry. That's your ancestry. And that doesn't make for a simple story for you. And it shouldn't be a simple story. I mean, it's complex what happened. So what did your grandmother mean by that with the border? And
1: yeah, well, first of all, I found this out later because she did always say that, but. It's not a quote that she has only, she has said, it's actually a quote that has been said actually so often that there's not necessarily a proper attribution for it. (laughs) So it it was okay to quote it for her, for her, you know, in her own voice. But anyways, she would say that because she grew up right there on the border where just a generation or two before that was Mexico And then she didn't leave her people didn't leave the border changed. And then suddenly they weren't Mexican anymore, but of course, unwanted and unvalued by American society and government. Um, And so she grew up in that, in that transition. She, it, what, it didn't happen while she was alive. I think it was probably her grandparents, Um, but she grew up in the result, you know, of how that impacted Mm -hmm. the generations to come. And she grew up in that liminal space in that same way.
0: And then it did affect the generations to come being you. So you find yourself growing up in Louisiana among whiteness. You share that in your book, that it was very segregated, but here you are a brown girl. So you kind of feel like you don't fit in in either space. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because... A lot of the stories I share in the book where I talk about these things happened when I was a little kid, like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And those are really formative years. So in a lot of ways, this is a, an experiment engaging with my young self. Of mm-hmm. course, I can't remember exactly how things happened, but I can remember how they felt. And I can kind of reimagine like how little me was feeling and thinking about things. Mm-hmm. So I talk about those kinds of stories at that age. And at the same time, over time, the people in our community knew our family and I I found my place and I had a good experience in school. I had good friendships. I did well in high school. So I'm not trying to say I was just miserable, but I think internally, I always felt this insecurity that I didn't fully belong. And I could trace that back to a lot of experiences that happened when I was really young. And don't,
0: I mean, do not minimize that. I don't want you to feel like you have to minimize your story and what happened (laughs) because I know we often do that. And you share in your book, like in middle school, you would come home and cry every day after school. And just the things that were said to you, the racial slurs, and it's you yeah. pretty much lived. I mean, I think you say when it comes to race and identity, I spent the entirety of my life not totally sure where I belong. So yeah. even though you can look and say it was pretty good, you have a lot of trauma from that. Is that yeah. fair? To
1: say? Yeah. yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I think I think the reason I have to let go of my fear of being misunderstood because I'm putting something really vulnerable out into the world that was painful and healing to write but there will be judgments on it. And one of my fears is that people will think I'm complaining, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, I know I, I didn't set out to write things to go look how terrible and traumatic my life was because honestly, I I'm a glass half full kind of gal. I, I feel like really happy with my, with my life. And I think that I want people to know that that's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is shed light on some really nuanced ways of thinking thinking about microaggressions and their impacts. I feel like we don't do that enough. It's got to be super traumatic, super blatantly racist to get people's attention and to make them feel bad or feel a type of way. But the stuff that really counts, that really adds up and shapes people of color are the everyday microaggressions. So I was trying really hard to explain that. And I wasn't um, I wasn't trying to be like, look how bad this is, but okay. I've already had some experiences with the book where I've realized that's how people were receiving it.
0: <laughs> okay. I appreciate you clarifying that. And that's probably where that came from. We're like, hey, yeah, yeah. And I am with the questions I'm asking you, I'm not. Hitting on the whole point of your book. I'm diving into just great childhood and some of the trauma that leads into the liberation that you find and need. So I hope I'm not framing it. Absolutely. And I did not read the book at all thinking, like, oh my gosh, she's just complaining about her whole childhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, I read your book as being such a vulnerable just your voice is so vulnerable. And like, here, here's what I experienced as a Brown girl, but here's where I've also realized I am made in the image of God and the liberation that I need that I hope I can extend to others. Um, Cause you do. And I'm not going to just keep hitting on your childhood trauma, but your mother wound is really large too. Like, yeah, I Mm -hmm. never knew that about your, I mean, I don't know how I would, but I didn't (laughs) know that about your story. And it's like reading your book also just showed me like the Instagram. We can look at somebody and be like, Oh, they're just gorgeous and they have it all together and look at her and then hearing like you didn't feel pretty and that your mom abandoned you when you were 10. It's like, there's so much more beneath the layers yeah. being a liberated woman you are now, but knowing what you overcame and built you, I think is just a very, I mean, it's liberating and freeing in itself. So I guess, thank you for that. And also why I'm going into some
1: of your childhood stuff. Oh my goodness. No. And I'm totally open to talk about it. If I wasn't, I wouldn't have written a book about it. <laughs> But I'm totally okay with delving into those things. And I appreciate you reading so thoroughly that you, you know, no, take, took notice of these.
0: Yeah. And I should tell my listeners, so the book is a Brown Girl's Epiphany, but the subtitle is Reclaim Your Intuition and Step Into Your Power. So it is a liberating positive moving forward
1: book. Absolutely. I think that I wrote with a pretty strong sense of hope and compassion. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And the other thing is like, I'm trying to be a storyteller to share concepts and ideas that people don't always engage when they're like macro or systemic issues. So I feel like sharing our stories is a way for us to like relate to each other and to, I don't know, just to discover deeper truths about ourselves and others. So I do think I'm I'm saying that to say this book is for other people. It's not just about my story. I'm always kind of getting to a point or an epiphany from whatever I'm sharing that I hope has some sort of universal theme for people to take away.
0: Right. And it absolutely does. So let's let's hit on some of the more universal themes that um we I think a lot of us as women can relate to. So one of the things you talk about is imposter syndrome. And I listened to your Instagram live with Kindle and you're gonna, is that what you're gonna be talking about? Okay. Yeah. So all your life Mm -hmm. you've struggled with that. Mm -hmm. but we can also trace that probably back to the childhood trauma and your proximity to whiteness and not feeling like you belong, but then not feeling like you belong in spaces with black or brown bodies. So do you care about maybe diving into that topic a little bit more? Yeah,
1: yeah. sure. Um, You know, I think I'm an Enneagram six. I don't know if that means anything to you or anyone listening, but sixes can go to three in stress, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but, but stress isn't always a bad thing. Stress is sometimes survival and stress can be, I don't take that as a negative, but sometimes what I think about Enneagram threes is they are really good at being chameleons. Like they can walk into a room and they can just become whatever they need to become in that room. And I think that I learned how to do that at a young age, like figure out how to speak the language, the cultural language and whatever was needed in the room for me to fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a survival tactic that I didn't know I was doing, but I got to do it so much that Sixes also go to nines who <laughs> don't always know who they are. <laughs> this is an Enneagram conversation now. That's great. Um, so I did that so much that it's almost like, who am I? And that would naturally feed into these feelings of feeling like a fraud, feeling like I don't really fit places. It's just a facade or something. And then now as a woman of color, cause I'm going to talk about this at NSP, but it sucks to have imposter syndrome for anyone, but the particular strain of being a woman of color is interesting because it's so trendy right now to be anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And so you really don't know, like, did I get asked to be on this board? I get to ask to be on boards all the time. It just feels like it's, a diversity ask, you know, it's, it just doesn't always feel like good. It's yeah. always like, did I get asked? Cause I'm a woman of color or did I get asked? Cause I could genuinely make a contribution here. Yes. And even with my book, like, Oh, look at this book, a Brown girl's epiphany. Like it's clearly about themes having to do with white supremacy and identity. And that's really popular right now. And so it's like, did I, could I have gotten a book deal if I wasn't talking about themes of racial trauma? Like, am I actually a good writer or did this just fit with what was needed in the market or something, <laughs> you know? And so those double whammies of and like too, the intersectionality
0: that comes into play because
1: yeah. as a woman,
0: I feel it, but you as a Brown woman, there's a whole other layer that I had not even considered. Yeah, huh.
1: There was like a whole period of time where I still remember I'm, I'm like writing a spoken word about this. We'll see if I share it. But like, I still remember when it was like, cool to just disregard my voice. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's like, funny, to we see, we see the shift. And, but it, but it also will play tricks in your, in your head about your worthiness, even though that sucks and it shouldn't be tied to that. Coming from a faith space too. I mean, my own story coming out of some
0: toxic theology. I mean, and I know you have also, I feel like it's kind of set you up for imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. because so much of that trying to be this good Christian girl and do good things. You talk about this in your book, being a good person, being what other people expect. And you're constantly questioning, do I fit or can I be a chameleon? But then you come out of it and you're like, I don't even know what I am and where I'm supposed to fit. So how did faith play a role and maybe still does. in that whole imposter syndrome.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's what this book is all about. It's, mm-hmm. it's about reclaiming my own intuition and by doing so stepping into my own power, which could also mean stepping into my own fullness or stepping into my own identity and not having to question the goodness or the truth or the power of that anymore. Um, and so I think that in faith contexts, you get told there's a lot of layers. There's a lot of intersections, but the number one thing that stuck with me is, you know, you get told not to trust yourself. And I'm actually writing a sermon for this Sunday because we're doing a series called to our younger selves. And each Mm. preacher says a message. And my Mm. message is to my younger self is your heart isn't deceitful, but we start with this messaging, like, don't trust yourself. Your heart is deceitful you know, separate your body and your spirit. Your body's bad, your spirit's good, but let these other people determine like what you need to be doing. And so that sucks, but then, you know, be a woman and that's like, shrink yourself, be small. You're not supposed to be preaching. You're not supposed to be speaking. And so then you become a pastor and And suddenly I'm sitting here trying to write sermons for a decade. And I realize every single time I write a sermon, I have have to unpeel all these layers because even though I, in my head, believe I'm allowed to be doing this, it's that indoctrination is so powerful that it still affects the writing process. So yes, my faith is very much intertwined with (laughs) with the imposter syndrome. And that's why I'm talking about it at NSP because it is, a conference for clergy and faith leaders and people mm-hmm. who are, you know, creatives and doing work at, you know, somewhere at that intersection of faith. And um, I think it's very relevant.
0: <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. So, thinking about that and the conference being women preaching and you being a woman pastor but you went to school in Texas. Did you always feel called to be a pastor? Were you told growing up women can't preach? Like, I'm I'm so curious about that because that's what I was always told like women can't be pastors. That was kind of the first unraveling of my faith when I started questioning that. So what was the message that you got of that growing up and how did you still follow that call to be
1: a pastor? Yeah. Um, Well, I grew up Catholic and I grew up away from the harm of evangelicalism. Catholicism, I guess everyone has their own experience, but for me, it was a very mystical individual experience. My dad was so great. He was always just really open. So I never felt, I think that's why at my core, and I go back to my child self a lot, is at my core, I feel really like strong and really empowered. And I think that was before all the evangelical influences, but yeah, moving into evangelicalism, just... How did you move into that? Was that... Because my experience with Catholicism was so isolating because I, no one was Catholic in our town. In fact, there wasn't even enough people for a priest to reside there. So a priest from another town would have to come. We didn't even have church on Sundays. We would have it on Saturday because of that. And so I didn't have like friendships or, or, and I always loved the things of God, but I didn't have like people, peers my age who also cared. Mm -hmm. So I would go to youth groups from other churches Churches. So it'd be like the Baptist church. I would go to their youth group and I really had fun being with other people who cared about that. So when I went to college, I, I associated Catholicism with being l- like lonely <laughs> and I wanted to find where like the Baptist youth group of college was. And someone told me to go to the Baptist collegiate ministry. And I did, and I had a great experience. I was the freaking president by the end of it you know, but um, of the, of that organization, but it definitely, it really sucked me in.
0: (laughs) I think that's what happens to so many. I mean, it happened to me and my family, my daughter, when you fit in that box, you're really accepted and loved and it's fun and it's all good. But when you start questioning or speaking up and then, so I know in your book, you share that in seminary, is when your face started to unravel. So what was there one incident? Was it just accumulation of things that started your process of kind of decolonization, deconstruction?
1: I would say I didn't go through that process of deconstruction until after seminary and then deconstruction and decolonizing go hand in hand. I mean, if if you're going to really do it, I don't think you can avoid, right. you know, facing decolonization. So that happened later after seminary. But mm-hmm. I did. It was like baby steps out because I went to a seminary where they they accepted women pastors. So it was like normal for women to preach. And by doing so, I burned all the bridges of my former former ministry experiences mm-hmm. in Louisiana. Um, but I had a good time in seminary. It was mostly the academia that really. Rattled me, like realizing the, the very narrow way of thinking that I had adopted was just like a speck in the world of theological views. And I think it just really overwhelmed me. And I didn't, I just struggled with knowing how to be in an academic setting all the time and then still have like a spiritual life. <laughs> because, and I really just didn't. I just, didn't during those four years. I just, I don't know. I just kind of survived.
0: So I remember when I went to evolving faith conference in person a few years ago, and Ends is one of the speakers and he asked for a show of hands of how many people have gone through seminary. And if that's what started your whole faith unraveling. And mm-hmm. I mean, 70%
1: yeah. of people. raised. Yeah. yeah. I always tell people I had to recover from seminary. Oh, I mean, I'm glad that I went, but I really love God. I love, I have a mystics heart. Mm -hmm. Like I love the mystic posture of the, the posture of the mystics. And I love just, I don't really need a lot of answers. I, I just like to sit in the presence of God. And I lost that going to seminary because I needed to have respectable answers. Um, And it just started a, but I really liked going to seminary because it equipped me for faith wrestling Mm -hmm. and for thoughtful movement in the world as a person who is situated in the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I don't, I mean, it's just, it's never either or for me. It's always both. And
0: (laughs) where do you feel like you are in that process? I mean, I don't think there's like a tidy end place and I don't know I think there's all different views on the whole reconstruction. Are you out of that? Are you daily deconstructing? Or do you like, are you just settled where you feel
1: really at peace? I would say at the moment, and it could change, I'm out of the worst of it. And I have a level of peace.
0: Yeah.
1: But I also know that that could change. I mean, something could happen. I don't know. It could change. But it was many years of of wrestling and struggling. And, you know, it's hard to write. I mean, I would say like, man, I have to write this sermon. So I have to face the Bible. (laughs) Um, I probably wouldn't, I probably would have just left, you know, and not done it, but I'm glad I did because I'm not a person who can tell a lie. I, I just had, if I had a question, then I faced it in the sermon and I feel like that was a strength. Um, it absolutely so,
0: is, and don't you think? At least
1: I don't want to speak for you.
0: For me, part of that piece is just being okay with not having all the answers.
1: Yeah, and we're all different. Everyone's has their own needs, and but for me, I'm okay with not having some answers all the time. I just I don't think we can have answers all the time. So I
0: mean, we can't. I'm just going to say we can. If anybody listening thinks you can <laughs> I, mean, I just don't know how you can. I mean, I think that's what toxic theology is built upon thinking you can have all the answers or that you do.
1: Yeah. I think a non-dual posture when it comes to things of faith is essential for sustaining, you know, any type of spirituality. I don't think we can. I mean, yeah, science, other <laughs> topics like math, I don't know, but like <laughs> faith. I can't, I can't live with that kind of binary framework.
0: Yeah, I can't either. I mean, I think I've landed, I was there too long. And I think you would say you were too, but I I can't either. One of the things that you have landed on that I love that I think I read an article that you did an interview for, and you described yourself as an Imago Day enthusiast. Yeah. I love, that's beautiful. So can you, and you talk about that in your book some too, as far as, this inner goodness in us, the image of God in us. Can you talk about that a little bit more and how that has been part of your liberation?
1: Yeah, I'm just obsessed with that little piece of theology. It inspired, it's like, you know how um, the guy from Apple wore the same shirt all the time? Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about Imago Day. Like, it's my thing. Like, I'm gonna just wear it every day and talk about it every day <laughs> for the rest of my life. And everyone in my church can attest to it. They're always they're saying it all the time, and they're acknowledging that I say it, and but I'm it makes me happy. But it's you know it's that piece of theology, image of God, is what it means, and just that we're made in the image of God. The Spirit of God lives within us, and I talk about it in the book. But I just had this revelation as. I was still sort of coming out of the worst of the deconstruction where I realized, you know, my faith just always feels in crisis. Like I understand that I'm always going to be wrestling, but what if a terrible tragedy happens or something? Like, I don't know that what I, whatever I have is is able to survive that. And I just feel really scared and hopeless about that thought. And I ha- I felt like God spoke to me. I felt like I heard a spirit within me say, like you will never, if you don't trust yourself, you're never going to have confidence in your faith. Mm-hmm. And the thought that came to me was Imago day. like the, it, the spirit of God lives within me. And I have to learn how to listen to that spirit. I can't listen to some other pastor or some other writer or some other spiritual teacher uh, without also being in touch with the spirit of God within me. Mm-hmm. And that should be the starting point. I cannot be mimicking other people's way of living out their faith. It's not sustainable.
0: Because so much ties from that. I mean, even the intuition that you talk about in your book, that is tied to that knowing that you bear the image
1: of Imago Dei within you and that you can be trusted. And, you know, if you don't need that message, then I admire you. Like there are people, if you are a person who already trusts your intuition and isn't in tune, you probably don't need to read this book, but If you are someone who struggles, who second guesses yourself, who questions your own way of thinking and, or needs like rules, needs guidelines, needs someone else to lay it out for you, which is 100% how I've been most of my life, then maybe this book can be helpful, but beware, I'm not going to lay out rules. I'm not going to lay out guidelines. You will be disappointed if you're looking for blueprint. You know, it's more just like trying to practice those muscles that have grown so weak, those muscles of our intuition.
0: <laughs> I mean, I don't even know that they've grown weak. I think we've bled, led to believe as women, we don't have them.
1: Yeah. We should, like we've like, just like never we even cannot, starting out. in the
0: garden, you know, starting in the garden with you, you cannot women, you cannot trust yourself. Yeah. So I'm, if you, I guess if you think you don't need that, then I don't know what to say I'm to it
1: because I'm just <laughs> so what I'm is saying, it? if you're someone who's already done that, inner work, <laughs> done that inner work, right, you might not need it, but like I say about my book, it's really just a reminder of what was already true, which is that you already have a Mago Day. You already have power and you already have access to your intuition. Your intuition's already guiding you. It's just one of those things of like waking up to the awareness of it in a deeper way in a way that actually impacts your day-to-day life.
0: That inner intuition, the Imago day within you, is that something that you still wrestle with accepting or believing your own intuition? Or do you feel like I'm at the point in life where I have been liberated and that is something that, that I can breathe in and accept?
1: It's something I have to revisit regularly. Yeah, yeah. I think, like I said, the muscles are stronger because I've been working them out, you know? And so I can feel that I'm stronger, that I'm more in touch, that I'm listening better. I see it. I see this intuition work as a spiritual practice. You know, you have to practice. And with the things of faith, we often practice but never arrive. That's That's the stuff of it. Yeah, I don't think that... I want it any other way. That's if, you know, I, I want to be a practice, a practicer, a lifelong learner.
0: Okay. So this is, this is good for us to dive into the next, the topic I want to definitely touch on before we wrap up is the whole perfectionism overachiever people pleaser, because we, yeah. you share a lot about that in your book. And I so could, could relate to every bit of that. That's why this is giving me, intense anxiety. For listeners, we're having a lot of internet connection issues today on my my end, and you're being completely grace-filled with this, but it is giving me a lot of anxiety. You share in your book that you also have struggled with being a compulsive people-pleaser, overachiever, perfectionist, and a lot of that stems from childhood trauma and different experiences. So share a little bit about that journey. I mean, that's I know it's a long journey, but do you still battle with that? What, what has been the biggest thing in helping liberate you from that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it and because like I said, I I did have the trauma of my mom leaving and my dad, it took some growth for us to get to a healthy place, but it really was a catalyst for a lot of inner healing work for him. And I mean, overall, I don't remember him being super perfectionistic like toward me like having really really high standards I don't know where that came from other than to say that it was another way to try to beat the odds in this space that I was living in as a younger kid where I didn't always feel like I belonged I didn't always feel like I Was included or fit in, and I think that it felt like another survival tactic where I was just trying to like be better than everyone. (laughs) Like like because I wrote about this a long time ago. I don't know how to explain this well. It was almost like no,
0: you're doing a great job. I think so much of it. Like we know, having had a therapy session about this yesterday. I mean, we know what we're going to get when we please people. When we overachieve, I mean, we're going to get the accolades. We're going to get the acceptance. But it's all based on our performance. So it's a temporary thing, but we have to keep doing it to continue getting that acceptance.
1: And I feel I call it or I called it, I call what I feel like I was doing back then in hindsight, I call it people pleasing to spite. (laughs) I felt like I was going to show everyone (laughs) kind of thing, kind of energy. And, um, you know, it, is what it is. That was a kid. I was trying to make, create a, a path for myself, I guess, in some way. But I think that it was a reactive way of living. It was a way of, of being who I was, killing them with kindness <laughs> was a verse. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I lived by that verse. I was, I would say, I'm going to be so good and so above reproach and so perfect. And I'm going to just do it so well. It's it almost like to spite everyone. <laughs> so, Ooh. you know, looking back, it, it, it served what it, what its purpose was, perhaps, but it wasn't a healthy way. It wasn't a mago dei centered way of of living. And <laughs> that what? said, I still have perfectionistic tendencies, and, and the worst part about that is I don't always see it until I'm like parenting, and then I realize how my expectations are unreasonable, and I see myself being too rigid and expecting too much, and being and, and I, I hate that. I hate thinking that I'm passing down this perfectionistic thing to my kid. So what do you actively do to continue to liberate
0: yourself from that or overcome it? Is it again, that muscle you're flexing or the awareness? Because it is something hard to break out of. I mean, that is, especially when our very being, we've built so much of our reaction to things on acting that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, the awareness of it is very powerful. And I do think that some of the perfectionism is tied to my anxiety and trying to cope and trying to control environments and situations so that I prevent Anxiety for myself. I talk in the book about how I've been deconstructing my re- rigid relationship with time. Mm. That has been very healing for my anxiety. When I'm less anxious, I'm less concerned about perfection. And also, you know, retiring that people pleaser, that need to please, it is freeing me from needing to appear perfect right. or to say yes to everything. Um, And then again, being a parent and really seeing another human mimic you or be affected by your perfectionism, that is something that I'm working really hard on. Um, because it's just, it's kind of devastating for me. Even just today, I felt like, oh man, I was too hard. I was too hard on her about A, B, or C. And I always realize it after the fact. So I'm really hoping I can get better about preventing it. Um, but it definitely, it definitely keeps it a spotlight shined on that and me wanting to continue working on it.
0: And I think also, yes, our children absolutely put a magnifying glass on those issues, One thing for me, and you've touched on this a little bit in your book, is the tie-in with white supremacy of that perfectionism. Like, I had never until this last year just let that sink in. And so it's like, oh, my God, yeah, like how I can't continue this and say I'm trying to help break down these systems. And you have a whole little bit in your book talking about white and polite, you say white people often don't realize the ways they set norms around politeness and then expect the rest of us to follow suit. So although the term is you don't use perfectionism there, I think that politeness is all part of that, that uh, politeness, perfectionism, it's like, that's the norm whiteness has set. Yeah. When you don't fall into that, you're not so accepted in that group. Do you care about speaking into that a little bit? Cause that could be a little bit of an awakening, especially for white listeners.
1: Yeah. You know, I felt really affirmed and in the chapter I talk about how how I had this epiphany around it. And then I reached out to a lot of friends of color who I had never asked. I had never said this out loud to anyone, but everyone sort of affirmed it. And then even reading the book, my dad, who's a Brown man mm-hmm. came in the other day and he said, I just read this chapter and he just started spouting off stories about, mm-hmm. you know, his experiences with it. And he said, as I was reading, I just thought, wow, I've never read this before. Like, are these your thoughts? <laughs> like, yes. Are they, do they exist somewhere else? I'm sure they exist other places, but yes, dad, they're my thoughts.
0: <laughs> I mean, I've read a lot of books and I haven't read it clearly, like write out how you wrote it. Um, I highlighted it and sent it to a friend when I read it cuz I'm like god she's talking cuz I had just had a friend talking to me about it telling me she was she's a black woman Telling me, I Andrew, you need to be a little more bitchy. Like you're so nice. <laughs> I was like, Oh my god, I'm one of these nice white, polite people. who's talking to me here. But I mean, when it's your authentic self, it's okay. But it's like this this fake niceness that everybody has to fit into is what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, isn't? and and Normal. I want to talk about how it doesn't it doesn't serve us in dismantling systemic racism right. because, like I said earlier, the most common Forms tend to be microaggressions. I mean, when something blatant happens, it goes viral and we pretty much collectively agree it was wrong. But microaggressions happen every day, day in, day out, and we don't talk about them because it's impolite. (laughs) Yes. We don't want to be rude or they won't, you know, they'll be able to say you're just being rude or you're just, you know, they'll be able to minimize the mind. We've just touched on a lot of things in your book. That's why I encourage listeners. You need to get the book.
0: You talk about your child self a lot. And like you just mentioned, you're doing a sermon series on that. So I'm curious if you could just have one thing, like if you could actually go back and tell your younger self, just one thing, what do you think would be the big thing that you would tell the younger you that would really seep in?
1: Well, so I kind of mentioned earlier, your heart isn't deceitful, but let me go a little bit deeper into that and say that the impact when you don't trust yourself is that you lose access to some really powerful tools, one of which being creativity. Mm. Because, you know, I'm reclaiming not just my intuition, I'm reclaiming my creativity. We're just, I feel like we lose so much of that in childhood, you know, because we need to fall in line and (laughs) we lose access to our creativity in the process. The people that stay creative, oh my goodness, they just, it's so hardwired into them that they are able to keep it but a lot of us lose it. But the thing is, is we are all creative. And I believe that creativity begets creativity. So the more we, again, work those muscles, the more creative we become, the more ideas we have, the more access we have to dreaming, the more we dream, the more we create new realities for ourselves and the more we flourish. And, and so there's this kind of like entry way. Into, like, just the good stuff of living, into joy, and and into fulfillment. And that entryway to me is creativity. Well, when you don't trust yourself, you don't trust any of your ideas. You're so right. (laughs) And so, yeah, that's been a big revelation for me. You are so right. I am glad
0: that you've had that revelation and you had the courage to share your voice and write your words down in a book. I think so many. So many women are going to, and men and everyone in between are going to be blessed by your words and your vulnerability. So, thank you so much for that. Tell my listeners where else you can be found because it's just not
1: your book or your church, you're, you're in a few other places too. Yeah. Well, my favorite place to share is Instagram. I like that space. And I, I do a lot of spoken word reels where I try to take common Christian theologies or scripture verses that have been harm harmful in their interpretation. And I try to reimagine them through spoken word. So that's usually what I'm doing right now. I'm promoting a book, but yeah, find me on Instagram for that. And then of course I have a website it's revareliajoy.com and my Instagram is also revareliajoy. Okay and of course I'll put links to all of that and then
0: you have a podcast you've done one season is that going to continue or are you stop you and your co-host stopping at one season oh, Tell me a little bit about yeah. that so people can listen to you too in your podcast
1: so my great friend Reverend Brittany Graves we live nearby each other And uh, we have a podcast called Nuance Tea Podcast. We have one season where we cover various themes. We're doing some groundwork now. And then she was moving and I was writing a book. So we were kind of taking a hiatus slash doing some groundwork, but we absolutely plan to continue on with another season, probably right on the other side of my book promotion. I'm really excited about that uh, collaboration. It's It's just been such a dream space for me and really empowered me to think outside of the lines of the kind of like the lane that I've been assigned as a, as a a pastor, I guess.
0: Right. Just the freedom to explore and say, say things that are out of that, not completely out of that arena, but things that might be a little more on the outskirts of it. Like I said, I listened to the one on the astrology that you all did, and I'm excited to add another podcast
1: to my list that I listened to. Well, thank you so much. And I, oh. yeah, I'm really proud of it. We, we created it all and did it all ourselves. As you know, is a ton of work. Well, Aurelia,
0: I have loved this time with you. I appreciate, goodness, your grace for all the stops and starts that we've had. Our listeners probably aren't going to hear it because I've edited a lot out, but you have been so grace-filled for me because we've had pounding and internet issues and all the things that could possibly <laughs> go wrong, go wrong in this <laughs> in this podcast interview. Oh, well, we're retiring our
1: perfectionism, so we don't <laughs> care.
0: <laughs> Is that what the powers of be were trying to do today? Like, <laughs> yeah, let's just see. Let's just grow that muscle just a little bit more and yeah oh, geez, gosh it's fun well, when we have to actually practice
1: the work the inner work we've been doing I'd rather
0: not <laughs> practice it like in front of anybody or I'd rather do it on my own I feel you I feel you <laughs> oh goodness well I cannot wait to meet you in person at the Nevertheless she preached conference in just a couple weeks and we'll put links to that too on this podcast because you are on the board for that and like I said going to be a keynote speaker so
1: folks can still buy tickets is that right Yes, that's right. You can buy tickets all the way up until the day. Okay. So, yeah, definitely. Especially if you're in the Austin area, definitely. I
0: And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can
1: also just buy certain days. If Say you can only you can come buy like, certain days. You know. can buy tickets just for online, but I mean, I'm so excited to be in person.
0: <laughs> and you're speaking Monday, is that correct? Monday night. Yep. Okay. Well, I will be there and I can't wait to see you and meet you and all the things. Thank you so much for having me on.